Welcome back to the ATP podcast. I'm Seb Lozier, and with the very first United Cup reaching the final stages down under, and thoughts already turning to the first Grand Slam of the year, the Australian Open, of course, in Melbourne. This week, we are with one of Australia's true greats. One of the few men to have reached number one in both singles and doubles. He won seven Grand Slam singles titles and 17 in doubles, plus two more in mixed doubles and five, yes, five Davis Cup titles. We are talking about John Newcomb who followed a long line of fellow Aussie greats in Sedgman, Rosewall, Hode, Laver and Fraser. And when Chris Bowers went to meet him, that is where he started. How much did he benefit from rubbing shoulders with those fellow Aussie giants? I was um, a team member or a squad member in the Davis Cup squad when I was 17. So I was around the likes of Laver and Emerson and Fraser and And, um, you know, I I was someone who would observe people who'd who'd reached the very, very top and just watch what they did and figured out that that's how they train, that's how hard they do it, so I've got to do it at least as hard. And um, how they acted and how they reacted under pressure, all of those were lessons, um, I think, that I, I put into good use and and tried to uh, find my own way from there. And so there are a lot of people along the way that give you good little tips that you 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 take notice of. And I think all people who have reached the top, or most people who have reached the top, would would say that uh, there were lots of little lessons they learnt along the way, and they put and they put them into practice. So that's what I tried to do. And I was also told when I was 12 years of age that. You learn more from every match you lose than you do from when you win. So rather than sulk after I lost a match, I had a practice of within an hour I would sit down by myself and I'd, I'd anal- do a, a serious analysation of, of why and where I actually lost the match and, and not being afraid to say that other players was just better, but he might have been better because my second serve wasn't good enough and... If that was the conclusion I came to, well, I'd have to go and get buckets of balls and practice my second serve so that wouldn't happen again. Did you do that by yourself or did you do that with others? Did you have a coach? Was it Harry Hopman, the Davis Cup coach or what? No, I never really, not a coach, you know, that would would, uh, tell me those things. Uh, It was more the powers of observation and putting things into practice. You know, I had a coach when I was young uh, and... um, uh, growing up that produced your, your technique and your and your actual game uh, but after that it's uh, observation uh, I'll give you a perfect example when tennis went pro in 1968 we were playing a, a, a pro tournament in Boston at the Longwood Cricket Club uh, just the, the contract professionals and Pancho Gonzalez was one of those players I'd never met Pancho, and I had to play him in the first round. And I'd heard stories about how he's not—he's not very friendly after he loses, uh, especially in the locker room. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, I beat him six-four-six-four, and I went into the locker room and sort of thought, "Oh, where, where's his locker? I better hide out a little bit here." And he, he came in, and he was around another area of the locker room, and I heard rackets smashing in the lockers and everything like that. And, 
Anyway, um, I went out and uh, Laver and Rose, were, of course, were playing the tournament, and I observed that um, Pancho, uh, although he was out of the tournament, watched them every time they played. And I thought, oh, they're the best two players, and he's observing them because he loves tennis. So I went and sat with him, and we became great friends. Uh, you know, Pancho had a huge ego, so he was only too happy to impart all of the knowledge that he had and, ex- and explain things and what was going on on the court. So that's a perfect example of, um, you know, learning on the run. That uh, I couldn't have a better teacher than, than Pancho. He, was, he wasn't my coach or anything, but I was asking him questions and he was giving me <laughs> a great amount of knowledge. One of the things that gets quoted from that era was the fact that you would go for dinner with your fellow professionals, with people that you are playing against. Far cry from today when everyone has their own team and they go for dinner with their own people. Do you think tennis has lost something or do you think it's just a natural evolution and that one couldn't conceivably go back to those days? Well, you know, I'm not too sure what the guys do today now, um, you know, after they've lost or won matches. In those days when we left Australia, we were away for eight months. So the other boys became your family. And, you know, you'd practice together. And when we practiced, Rochi and I, we'd uh, practice. We wouldn't play a three-set practice match. We'd play a five-set practice match, try and kill one another on the practice court. Um, so, you know, we, we sort of had a, a code that if you'd, if you'd both lost in a tournament uh, and you were disappointed, you'd go out and have a big night, uh, but then you had to pay, pay the piper the next day. So the next day you had to train twice as hard uh, because of the big night you'd had. And uh, it was a sort of a, a fellowship that we had together. And uh, I noticed players from other countries, they quite often wouldn't be cheering for their compatriot, but we were very much cheering for one another. And also, you would occasionally go for dinner with journalists. These days, journalists get access to players in the post-match press conference, and if they're friends with the agent, they might get the odd one-on-one interview. Do you think, actually, given the need to promote tennis, that we need to rediscover something of that? Yes, that would that would be good, but, yeah, of course, it's... Uh, now there's a lot of news journalists involved in the in the sport, um, and and you know you, I guess the guys and the girls have got to be so careful what they say and do around them because next minute uh, you know they'll be ratted on. Um, we'd take the journo's out to dinner and and uh, get them to have quite a few drinks and get the goods on them, so we <laughs> turn the tables on them. And and did that ever happen? Did you ever get information on? Uh, journalists to the point where you knew that they were going to write fairly about you because uh, you had a bit of information in your little black book. Well, the thing was, we we, we you know we, we all became friends, and um, and they had entree to us, and they knew that if they ratted on us, that that entree would just be cut off. All the Australian guys would have just cut that journo off; he would have no access. Uh, so it was an unwritten rule. So as long as they behaved themselves um, and and didn't you know report things they shouldn't be reporting on, and and kept to tennis, uh, we all remained very good mates and, and 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 did so for many many years. 
A lot of players talk these days about overplaying, about playing too many tournaments. Did you ever have the risk of overplaying, either before tennis went open in '68 or in the years, you know, the early years of pro <clears throat> tennis? I think it's not so much the the physical side of overplaying, although that can be true too. But that's easier to tell. It's more the mental side of overplaying, and that comes down to: um, Are you happy in what you're doing? So I had occasions over the years where, you know, we had three children along the way and um, each time another one had come along, I, I was finding it increasingly difficult to to travel unless my family were with me. So I, I w- would find that I, w- I wouldn't be enjoying myself on the tour, um, you know, saying, well, you know, well, this is hard work, I, I should really be home helping my wife and... And so you'd go through those phases, and when you did go through those phases, your tennis fell off dramatically because your heart and soul weren't in what you were doing. So you'd have to kind of step away from that environment, take some time off, regroup, and then come back in. I mean, it happened to me once where I I lost uh, first round in tournaments once when I was, you know, up near the top five weeks in a row. And so I, I just took some time time away and um, and regrouped and came back strong Is it right that you used to take about 45 minutes before a match to visualise how the match would unfold? Yes it was something I learnt when I was in my late teens from someone I did some, some work with uh, on the psychology of the game again I spent time with that guy for about a year but then I felt I'd learnt everything I needed to learn and, and moved on but um, was that very new age at that time? Pretty much, yeah. I, I would, um, you know, visualise uh, the court and walking on the court, um, and who my opponent was going to be, and tossing for serve and serving and and, and playing the match. So uh, it was like a, re- a dress rehearsal. And, and when I went out there. I've, I felt it was oh this this is very comfortable. I've I've been here before. I actually told Owen Davidson all about that when he the year he got to the semi-finals of Wimbledon in in 1966 the year Manolo uh, won Wimbledon and Davo got to the semis uh, and Davo had some great wins during the during the tournament um, uh, doing that he found it very successful did you ever have a match where because you'd visualized it you felt you made it happen no I don't think so the visualization was um, not to, not taken to the stage of where I'm holding up the winner's trophy. It was all about the the the, the start of the the match. Um, you know that the walking on the court and the hitting up and the and the settling in and all the things that go on around you. So does that mean you were never nervous to the extent that it would actually affect your play? Nerves hurt me at the start in. Um, my first Wimbledon singles final, every, everybody was saying to me, oh, this is different, you'll be nervous at the start. And I went out to play Bungert and and we warmed up and I thought, no, this is pretty good. I had to serve the first game and I, I, I bounced the ball and the umpire said, play, and I put my racket out in front of me and it was shaking like a leaf. And I thought, oh, no, I'm, I'm really nervous. And I lost my opening service game, but I pulled it together pretty quick and broke him back the next the, the next game but there was that one and then earlier on 
when I was 19, I allowed nerves to get the better of me in my first ever Davis Cup match, which was, happened to be the Davis Cup final in Adelaide, Australia, uh, playing Dennis Ralston, who, I, who I'd beaten on that court in the final of the tournament in Adelaide. I'd beaten him in four sets uh, three weeks before this, and I allowed nerves to get the better of me, and and before uh, too long, I'd lost the first two sets, 6-4, 6-1. Uh, I was down two sets to love, came back and finished up losing 7-5 in the fifth, but when I came off the court, I said to myself, that's never, ever going to happen again. I'm never, ever going to let that happen to me again, and, and it didn't, you know. You mentioned the first Wimbledon final, uh, 67. I mean, if you look back at a tape of that, I think the longest rally is about four strokes. It was all serve and volley. Was that just because that was the way you played or was the grass somewhat unreliable in those days and you just had to get to the net to take the bounce out of it? Yeah, that you'd, by the end of the tournament, the grass would be torn up a bit. So, you know, you didn't want to hang around the baseline too long because uh, if someone got to the net on a reasonable approach shot and you, and you got a bit of a, a bad bounce it's pretty hard to pretty hard to make the passes so yeah that match you know finished up going pretty quick um, I think Willie you know possibly could have played a, a little bit better I don't know maybe I you know I, I guess I played reasonably well but uh, yeah uh, that, that, that was pretty much it the bounces today are, are much better than they were back then did you get any sense when you won that that this would be the last amateur Wimbledon and that by the following year everyone would be playing? No, I, I had no idea at that stage. Of course, two months later we played the US uh, and uh, I finished up winning that as well. And it was during that tournament that I was approached by um, Dave Dixon uh, from World Championship Tennis. Uh, he and Lamar Hunt were going to set up this new group and uh, to of eight guys to play professional tennis and promised us all sorts of things and so and he, he badly needed Tony Roach and myself to to sign so that he could convince other players to sign and Roachy and I signed I, um, to turn pro after the Davis Cup uh, so in January 68 we um, turned pro uh, and we were guaranteed uh, $50,000 to play well, I finished up 67 as the number one amateur in the world and I'd made $15,000. Um, you know, I'd been married for uh, for little, almost two years and if I can make 50000 or 15000 uh, you really didn't have a choice as far as looking ahead for, for your life. It's interesting actually to think you could even make 15000 as an amateur because surely as an amateur you shouldn't have made anything. No, absolutely right. I mean, it was uh, shamateurism at its best. Uh, I won Wimbledon and got a 50-pound money order, and yet I'd play tournaments all around the world, and I'd, I'd get a guarantee of um, $700 for the week to play, uh, plus my, all my hotel expenses and, and, and food and that. So, And at the end of the tournament, you'd go into the tournament director's office and... It, and he'd say, I'll bet you $700 you can't jump across that line. And you'd jump over the line and you'd get $700. <laughs> so that's how you got your 15000 <laughs> Absolutely. Right. OK, let's not go too deep into that one. 
1970, you won your second Wimbledon title. You won the singles and the doubles. You beat Rose Wall in the singles final. What do you remember about <clears throat> the singles final? And can one actually win singles and doubles these days? Or <clears throat> is that just a feature of your era? No, of course they can win singles and doubles. Uh, you know, no problem at all if they're playing right double, uh, playing doubles. And, of course, if they're very smart, they'll pick the right partner. <laughs> It'll make you a great doubles player. <laughs> Um, the singles final was uh, special for a, a number of reasons. Um, I'd, I'd been runner-up to Laver the year before, and that was a, a great honour to get to the final and play, you know, Rod Laver in the final. Uh, I lost to Rod in four sets, and Ken was, um, uh, you know, older than me. He's ten years older than me, and um, when I was seventeen, and he he was the probably the best player in the world then, playing professional tennis. Uh, I was playing amateur tennis, but he, he'd come out and practice with me, and um, I'd, uh, quite often after we'd finish and he'd hit nine backhand passing shots in a row on the line, I'd shake my head and say, I don't, I don't think I can get that good. So, And that was a slice backhand, wasn't it? Well, sliced and flat, yeah. And um, it would be hard to call it a slice backhand because it had power in it. Um, but uh, so now to be playing Ken in a, in a Wimbledon final, it, it was going to be a real challenge because I had this the history of the past, being a young kid and and growing up watching Ken play in Davis Cup matches with Lou Hode, and um, and I, I knew that although I was popular at Wimbledon, um, that Ken would be the crowd favourite because he'd lost in the finals in um, in the fifties fifty four to um, to Drobny and then he'd lost to Lou Hode in the final there so this was his third go uh, and I was I'd won once so uh, he won the first set and yeah, I think 7-5 or something and and then the the, the 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 crowd were you know they were being fair but they, they were obviously a bit on his side and then I, I beat him quite comfortably the next two sets 6-3, 6-2 and and, and I led 3-1 in the fourth and I was rolling over the top of him and and the crowd got uh, so much behind him that uh, I allowed it to get into my head. I'd miss a volley and they'd all clap and um, he, he'd hit a good shot and they'd go crazy. And, and um, uh, I allowed this to upset me and, and within a, not too long I'd lost five games in a row and I... He'd won the set 6-3, um, and, the, you know, the crowd was in an uproar and, and the, the momentum had gone 100% his way. So I, I changed ends, and, um, and that, they didn't have a chair to sit in there, and you went and got your own drink, and I poured a, uh, some Robinson's barley water that they had there and stood there, and I, and I said, um, hey, you know, you've got... 60 seconds uh, before you walk out on the court. Um, you've allowed negativity to overtake your whole body. In the next 60 seconds, you've got to force out all of that negativity. When you go out on the court, there's going to be a player at the other end of the court and a tennis ball, and that's it, nothing else. And um, I put, my, put in that 60 seconds, I put myself in a zone um, and went out and beat Ken 6-1 in the fifth. And a couple of days later, 
when you get a chance, some time to reflect on these things, uh, I was thinking to myself, wow, I'm really proud. I, I was able to win Wimbledon again and beat uh, Ken in the final. And I thought for a minute and I thought, yeah, I'm proud of that, but I'm actually more proud of myself what I did in that 60 seconds. I turned a situation where I was 100% negative into 100% positive in the cauldron of of centre court. So uh, I I felt extremely proud of that uh, situation. You went on to write a book called The Power Within, How to Create a High-Performance Mind. How much did you actually draw on those 60 seconds between the fourth and fifth sets of that final in writing that book? That, it was one of the great lessons that I'd, I'd been through. But in writing the book, I'd, I'd always wanted to write a book about, you know, on, on the mental side of the game. And I had a, a good mate who was into psychology and all that. And so he would write a chapter about the technical side of psychology and all that. And then I'd think about situations that I'd had in my career and I'd, um, from what, what he'd said, I'd put that into all that, that. Yeah, I experienced that, and this was the occasions where I experienced this, and this, this was how I overcame the situations I was in. So we went chapter for chapter like that, and it was, it was fun to do it because he was doing the technical side and I was talking about the actual practical side where I'd experienced it in battle, uh, if you will, and, and, and so it was, it was kind of fun to write. And, and there's a, um, reading the book afterwards, I thought there was a, a lot of good stuff in there. Could one summarise in a few seconds how you do create a high-performance mind? I don't think, I don't think you could do it in a few, <laughs> a few, in a few sentences uh, because it was a, it, it, for me it was a lifetime of experience. So I was able, as Davis Cup captain, to impart all the knowledge I had into into my players w- when they are in tough situations, and 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 sometimes it really it really helped them out of a tough situation, helped them to get a, a grasp on the situation in their own mind, and the, and they came back and um, were able to uh, find a way to win. They had to do it, but I was able to show them the path up the mountain. Between the 1970 and 71 Wimbledons, there was a slight change in you. Forgive me for getting personal here, but in 1970 you were clean-shaven. In 1971 you had this drooping moustache, which you've had ever since. And in fact it became your logo when you had a line of clothing. Was there a story behind that moustache emerging? Uh, uh, My wife and I were on holidays in Hawaii and I grew a moustache. And... um, Anyway, and I said, um, what do you think? She said, yeah, it looks all right. Um, so I got the seal of approval and I thought, I'll keep it. And it it, it, it went from there. And then um, I signed with a clothing company and uh, in America and they came up with all these logos for the clothing and one of them was the moustache logo. And, um, of course, that became my logo and it, and it, and it went on everything um, I mean, one one stage I had seven different clothing contracts around the world. Could have taken it to some great heights in the end, but once I'd stopped playing, I said, I'm sick of all this, so I I didn't do it anymore. It didn't affect your tennis, because in 1971 you defended your Wimbledon title, you won another five-set final, this time against Dan Smith. 
Yeah, um, Sam, Sam was a tough player. We had a lot of uh, really good battles. Um, uh, fortunately, I won a few more than he did. But um, in that match, uh, I, I'd, I'd been playing really well up to the final and played a, um, uh, a good first set and won it. And then Stan came back and won the next two. And I managed to win the fourth and and, and the fifth. Um, I think something like six four six four or something like that. And um, so yeah, that was that was a battle. Um, Any time you come back uh, from two sets to one against Stan, you know you've had to you've had your work your work cut out. Having won Wimbledon in seventy and seventy one, how much did it hurt you that as a contract professional signed up with World Championship Tennis? you were not allowed to compete in 1972. That, that was probably one of the biggest blows um, and disappointments in my tennis career because nobody had won Wimbledon three years in a row since Fred Perry in the 30s at that stage. And I thought the, the argument being used by Wimbledon to cut out WCT players or contract professionals from competing ha- had no credence to it because we'd played under those conditions the previous four years. Uh, I, wouldn't, I couldn't believe they'd do it, so I actually put in my entry form and turned up to Wimbledon and they wouldn't let me play. So two-time defending champion sat on the sidelines and, and did TV commentary of Stan Smith winning the final. Was that a weird experience? Uh, I, I don't know about weird. It was more the, you know, by that time the, the disappointment had worn off and, the, you know, it, in life the things are are what they are and you say well it is what it is I, I can't do much about it whether I've got to move on but by the same token it, it sort of start, started off a TV career where I because I commentated there um, I, I did uh, commentating for you know another I don't know 40, 50 years or something like that We've talked a lot about Wimbledon we've mentioned your US triumph you uh, had plenty of triumphs at the Australian Open, including in 1973, you won the singles and the doubles. What are your memories of that? I hadn't won the Australian Open before. Um, I'd always, um, I always hadn't really played my best tennis there. Uh, it, it was played over, Australian Open was played for years over Christmas, and I, I always found it difficult um, because I'm a real family man. I'd I'd want to have Christmas, you know, with my family and sisters and and, and parents, and and um, and that that's not the best way to, you know, be preparing to to uh, to play a, a tournament. Anyways, I was happy to to win. I beat Oni Oni Parron in the final, uh, and then uh, won the doubles with Mel Anderson. And I, I actually had a '73 was quite an interesting year because uh, I was. Uh, Pondering whether how much I wanted to keep playing, and uh, I told uh, Tennis Australia that uh, because we were now allowed back into the Davis Cup competition after five years being shut out, they asked me if I'd play, and I said, "Sure, I'll play." So I wasn't going to play World Championship tennis, uh, but I'd pl- I was going to play Davis Cup all year, um, and so I didn't play that many tournaments after the Australian Open. Finished up not doing very well in the in the French, but I won the doubles with Tom Ocker. Didn't play Wimbledon because we we boycotted Wimbledon, and then um, I was re- I was ready to retire after that. I'd 
I'd had enough and my wife said I, I think you you should think about it and so I saw right I'll, I'll give it another year but um, I, I have to have goals and I, you know I'm gonna have to sacrifice my family and I said all right I, the US opens on in another month I, I'm gonna train like hell I'm gonna win that and then um, and WCT final is on in nine months after that I'm gonna win that and and that's it so I I won uh, the US Open, uh, won the doubles with Owen Davidson, and nine months later won WCT. <laughs> then, unfortunately, I couldn't retire because I was, I was now number one in the world, which wasn't a task I set out to do. I, I only had these two goals to do, but I'd won so many tournaments along the way that suddenly I was number one. Uh, but so going back to 73... It was a strange year because I was ready to retire and I didn't play Wimbledon, yet I won the, the three grand slams I played. I won the doubles in the three of them with three different partners and I won two of the singles. So I won five grand slam titles in the year where I was undecided about what to do and then at the end of the year we beat the US in the Davis Cup. So I'd had this unbelievable year, yet... Halfway through the year, I was ready to toss it all in. And in the Davis Cup, you and Rod Laver played all matches. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, again, there's singles and doubles. I mean, Rod and I played um, eight and a half hours of tennis on the first day. I beat Stan in five, and then he beat uh, Tom Gorman in five, and Neil put, uh, Fraser put Rod and myself in the doubles, and uh, it was a blow for Ken Rosewall because... You know, he's one of the greatest players of all time, and he didn't get a Guernsey in the in that Davis Cup tie. But um, I felt that, despite the fact Kim was a great doubles player and you know probably better than me in singles, um, that Rod and I were the best pair because you know I had a big serve and a big game to go along with Rod, and we'd only played um, three tournaments together before. Uh, we played against one another a lot, and. Uh, but uh, we'd never lost uh, when we played. And I, th- I, I, I thought we were, we were a pretty good pair. And uh, as it turned out, I think Stan Smith and Eric Van Dillen, they'd never lost the Davis Cup doubles before. And I think they got five games in three sets against us. So it was probably the right decision. In 75, you played the Australian Open final against Jimmy Connors uh, and you won. I mean, that was... Remarkable because Connors was the player of 74, the way you'd been the player of 73. Yeah, Jimmy and I had uh, only ever played once before, uh, and that was in uh, in 73 at the US Open, and I beat him in the quarterfinals in straight sets. So he finished up 74, number one, I was number two, but we never played all year. Um, so I had... You know, really wanted to play him, but he'd got through the final in uh, at Wimbledon in the US and beaten Ken Rosewell, and uh, we never got a chance to play. So the Australian Open was coming up, and I'd told the organisers, I said, look, I'm definitely not playing. Um, you know, I'm going to be with my family over Christmas, and that's it. I've had enough. I'm, I'm getting out. And it was 10 days before the tournament, they, they rang me and said, uh, Connors is definitely coming. Will you change your mind? I said, you give me a guarantee that he's coming and, and, and I'll be there. So I hadn't played for a month and I had 10 days to prepare uh, for, this, for the tournament. And so I, I thought, well, 
no use playing a lot of tennis. So I played a little bit of tennis, but I did a heck of a lot of training. And I had a three-mile run from my house, and the last uh, the last uh, mile was up a, a very steep hill. And um, I'd start at the, you know, run around and get to this hill and look up at it, and then I'd get halfway up and think, <laughs> I'm starting to feel this pretty bad because I'd, I'd run it in the middle of the day in the summer heat. And uh, I'd say, no, I'm five sets all in the fifth with Jimmy. Uh, i got to get to the top. And I'd, I'd take off at as fast as I could and get to the top, and I'd sort of get to the top. It was a busy street, you know, so cars are going by, and I'm standing at the top uh, doing a rocky. <laughs> is this at the age of Sydney? Yes, yeah, this is in Sydney. And uh, so I, I thought I was reasonably fit, you know, not as fit as I'd like to be going into a Grand Slam. But um, So we, we got down to the tournament and I won my first match in five sets against a, a German player, I can't remember his name now, um, in five sets. And I wasn't playing very well, but I, I felt pretty good at the end of it. So I thought, well, uh, fitness is not too bad. And then during the tournament, we had lots of uh, rain. So the final was going to be played on a Wednesday, which was New Year's Day, uh, a big holiday in Australia. And, and um, because of the rain, uh, we, I had to play my doubles, a singles quarterfinal on Monday against Jeff Masters. And uh, I beat Jeff 10-8 in the fifth and then had to play a doubles match, best two out of three with... Tony Roach after that, which we won, uh, and then the next day I had to play Rochi in the semis, and Rochi and I always had unbelievably long matches, and um, so I'd, Monday night I went to our Davis Cup trainer, Stan Nichols, and said, Stan, I need help bad, and he worked two hours on my legs, just pushing all the lactic acid out, and I, I woke up um, Tuesday morning feeling not too bad, and played Rochi, um, got down 5-2 in the fifth and um, and finished up winning 11-9 and saved four match points but I had no memory from 5-2 down till when I won 11-9 and, it was, and I sat in a chair at the end of that match and, and, and a, the reporter who I knew came up to do an interview with me and, and I had a towel over my head and and um, I looked up under the towel and, and he just looked at me and walked away. And uh, he said he'd interviewed a lot of fighters after their fight, and that's how I looked. And yet you came back and beat Connors. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd in that match with Rochi, I'd been in uncharted territory. I, I had no idea. Couldn't Normally you can remember points. I couldn't remember anything from 5-2 to 11-9. To um, so I went to Stan again that night and then I had to play Jimmy the next day and um, we, we, I didn't watch the match for I think 12 years or something and then someone gave me a, a video and I thought oh wow this is a little closer than I thought <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I won in tie break in the fourth set but I led 5-3 in the fourth serving for it and Jimmy played a great game and broke me and then we got in the breaker and he had 6-5 serving for the fourth set in the breaker and I hit a, he served a first serve out wide my backhand and came in and I hit a backhand winner down the line and um, which he's still not forgiving me for today 
uh, and um, it, you know finished up winning. But had I lost the fourth set, I would have been in unknown territory physically again. And as I said at the start, you know, normally when I'd go into a Grand Slam, physically I'd be able to do all that. But um, you know I wasn't as prepared as I, I normally would be. So um, yeah, I, I rated that win not just against Jimmy, but winning that whole um, uh, tournament as my greatest uh, physical and emotional effort, you know, combined to be able to pull it off. And one more question about the Australian Open. The following year, you played an All-Australian final against Mark Edmondson, and that was the last time an Australian won the men's singles at the Australian Open. I bet you had no idea about that at the time. No, well, who knows, uh, you know, what's going to happen. It was quite interesting that uh, because uh, I didn't really know Edda, you know, he was like an unknown player and um, and I hadn't been playing a lot during 76. Again, I was ready to retire but hadn't and um, wasn't that fit. And um, during the tournament, I, I noticed this young guy, Edmondson, playing and and, uh, and came up and introduced myself and said, wow, you're doing great, you know, keep it up and blah, 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 and gave him encouragement. And now suddenly I'm playing him in the final. And uh, it, it was a extremely hot day. It was one of those days in uh, in the well into the 30s centigrade. And uh, I, I won a tough first set and then I just sort of ran out of gas from then on. And um, but Edo played great during the tournament. He was serving out of a tree and and uh, and playing extremely well. So he he deserved to win that. How do you feel today's tennis is? What's its general health? Obviously, you have the perspective of having been an amateur in the sixties, a professional in the late sixties and early seventies. Are you comfortable with where today's tennis is, or do you think that too much has got lost from your era? I think we're very lucky that the players who have been at the top of the game have a great respect for the history of the game, and and that's been so healthy. So, so I, I feel really good about that. I think the the rackets and the strings today are, are too powerful, um, so they've kind of taken away a lot of the subtleties of, of the game. But having said that, it is pleasing to see um, a lot more slice backhands now, you know, so that as well as coming over their backhand, they're slicing the backhand, um, a little more touch coming into the game, but the the power that comes out of the shots and the, and the swings, um, uh, it's like foreign territory to me. I can't imagine uh, hitting a ball like Nadal, you know, um, or Djokovic on his forehand, the way they follow through uh, with the racket head. It wasn't in our DNA because we had wooden rackets. If you tried to do that, you'd break your arm before the match finished. Is there one moment you would pick out as being the most memorable of your many years as a player, a coach, a Davis Cup captain and a commentator? Look, I think um, winning Wimbledon the second time was... um, Magic being able to play against and beat Ken Rosewell in the final. Um, and then um, the seven years that Tony Roach and I ran the Australian Davis Cup team, um, Roach and I 
you know, played doubles together forever. Um, you know, we had an unbelievable record. Um, we were great mates, um, still are today. Running that Davis Cup squad for seven years, he and I say it was seven of the best years of our tennis lives. Uh, we started off with a young team that had, you know, hadn't played Davis Cup the, before, Pat Rafter, Mark Philippoussis, Leighton Hewitt. And we, when we took over in 94, we told them, we said, guys, your expectations are that if you reach the quarters of a, a Grand Slam tournament, you've, you're doing really well. That's, that's not where our bar is. Our bar is uh, to win the Davis Cup and to become the best team in the world. Now, it took us five years to help mould those young guys into the best team in the world and where they were winning Grand Slam titles and, and all that. And, and, um, at, at, and we went through some real hardships during that time, some tough losses, but every time we'd say to them, guys, we've been knocked flat on our backs. Um, this is the test of your character and, and we want you to stand up and when you stand up, we want you to stand taller than when you were knocked down and if you do that we'll be with you every inch of the way so we developed this uh, team camaraderie that we felt we could do and achieve anything and we we had injuries and we blooded new players and and because they were around this atmosphere they played unbelievable tennis like Wayne Arthurs Um, and um, and Leighton Hewitt you know being blooded and and that and so you know we finished up winning the Davis Cup in in Nice uh, against France in 99 and during that year we we played in on four different continents on four different surfaces and we never had the same team twice because of injuries but every every guy we threw into the breach played way beyond themselves so it was uh, to be around that and be part of that uh, for Tony and myself was very, very special. John Newcomb, thank you very much for sharing your experiences of tennis. My pleasure. What an incredible career, John Newcomb. What a great chat too. And thanks to Chris Bowers for making that happen. Speaking of Chris, he will be taking the reins for the next few weeks as the ATP pod brings you all the colour news and chats from the first Grand Slam of the year, the Australian Open. Can't wait. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis.